0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com/mtb or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. This episode of the podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of the tsleil Musqueam, and Squamish peoples. Last episode, we heard from Len Nessefer. He's a Navajo Mountaineer and CEO of Natives Outdoors. If you haven't listened to the episode, I strongly encourage you to do so. Len touches on the value and importance of traditional indigenous names. As well, he explains just how cultural appropriation affects First Nations communities. As a follow-up to that episode, we'll be diving into just how mountain bikers and outdoor recreationists in general can work with indigenous communities. I'm your host, Brian Hillier. And this is episode 43 of Frontlines. I'd like to welcome my next guest back to the show. Patrick Lucas is the founder of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hello. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm going to quote you back to you here, and and this is from a a recent video that was uh, created by the Mountain Culture magazine, and it's in reference to trails. Uh, I'll include a, a link to it in the show notes. And the quote is, it's about helping First Nations communities revitalize the trails that they would have used in the past to get out on their lands and to assert their rights and title. And, you know, I've asked you this before, but how important are trails to Indigenous communities?
1: Uh, well, and that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things I always want to say right from the get go uh, is that I'm coming at this issue and answering, trying, attempting answer to answer this question as a non-Indigenous person. So I don't speak on behalf of of any Indigenous communities or people, but. Over the last five years, I have spent a lot of time discussing these issues and and working on trail projects with several dozen different First Nation communities. So I've learned a lot from that. So my thoughts reflect those conversations and that guidance that has come from the First Nation communities that I've had the privilege of working with. And from my understanding and what I've learned is that trails are incredibly important to First Nation communities on a number of different levels. In terms of their relationship with the land, they've always been a really important part of their economic and social foundation. Uh, First Nation communities have been building trails and maintaining trails uh, for thousands of years. It's how they moved across the land. It's how they traded back and forth and interacted with other First Nation communities. And it's how they asserted their rights and title to their land, uh, it's how they maintain a the presence on their land and territories. In a contemporary sense, they're very important because when First Nation communities often, you know, try to assert, uh, say, specific claims, um, which is um, when they go to the government, let's say, and they say, this area of land is ours and we've been using this for thousands of years, so they use that to support, say, a treaty uh, negotiation process they often use the presence and their use of trails to assert that claim. So that can be a very important part of what they do. And of course, it's a very important part of their social life as well. Um, Many First Nation communities, uh, the reserves that they've been uh, assigned to and put onto over the years, uh, those communities were essentially built like prisons in a lot of ways. They were to keep people in and off the land to sever their ties to the land so many First Nation communities now are revitalizing those trails revitalizing those ancient trading routes to recapture that connection to their lands and territories so on a political level and a social level there's a whole bunch of different reasons that those trails are really important to them and of course on a health level many First Nation communities live in rural and remote areas where there's not a lot of opportunities for recreation so for many of them building trails is about giving their communities their youth their elders their their families opportunities for recreation and healthy living and on top of that once you start getting into things like tourism economic development those can become really important for those communities as well so there's a, a broad range of reasons that trails are so critically important for first nation communities
0: uh, for those who who may not be familiar, or perhaps haven't listened to to episode four of the podcast when you were when you were first on, uh, what is the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program?
1: The Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program is a group of mountain bike enthusiasts, so riders, trail builders, uh, community leaders, non Indigenous people like myself who want to partner with First Nation communities and provide opportunities to get kids and adults alike. Outdoors, uh, engaging in outdoor recreation and active living, and and uh, enhancing their health and well-being. So, we provide a number of different services as a nonprofit organization. We help First Nation communities design, build, plan, construct, and maintain uh, nature trails that are suitable for hiking and walking, and of course, mountain biking. And then we also provide things like riding clinics and bike maintenance clinics for youth and community members and help them kind of set up ongoing programming that will get people out and and moving.
0: So recently you've put together the the best practices and guidelines for engaging and working with Indigenous people on trails and outdoor recreation projects. And it's aimed at, at British Columbia, but I think it's it's really transferable for, for all of, of North America. And, and so what I'd like to do is, is kind of pick our way through that guide and, and just uh, ask you some questions about certain kind of key points. And and one of the very first things uh, that you write about in, in this guide is uh, making decisions in a good way. And, and what do you mean by by that?
1: Well, there that's a very specific thing that you'll hear a lot when you're working in different communities. It was something that when I first started working with First Nation communities about 10 years ago as a community planner, people would often talk about that. And they'd say, you know, if we're, we're going to do this plan or we're going to do this project we have to do it in a good way. And I came to understand that that meant that making sure there was a strong focus on the process, the the way that people came together to make decisions with a priority on inclusion, equality, honesty, uh, and focusing on community priorities around protecting, enhancing the natural world and the land and ensuring the cultural survival of uh, their people. And for them, no decision, nothing could come, nothing good could come from a decision that wasn't done in a good way. You know, so if decisions are forced on a community or um, are done in a way that doesn't follow these types of priorities, and for them, it invariably will lead to neg- negative outcomes. Um, it ha- so the focus is always on making sure that the process is done in a way that can lead to good outcomes. So it's doing things in a good way. And I think it's very important for You know, if you're a trail club or you're a non-Indigenous group, particularly if you want to go out and you want to build a trail, I think in the past with a lot of what we've done, you know, back in the day when people were just basically taking their bikes up the mountains and just kind of riding down whatever they could, there wasn't a lot of thought to the long-term outcomes of that process. But if we want to have trails that are sustainable, that Will bring people together and not cause conflict and negative outcomes, then we really have to think about that process. And I think that's something that uh, the mountain bike community has really matured in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, is because we know that we have to follow those types of uh, protocols, whether it's with non-Indigenous land managers and municipalities, or now increasingly, understanding that we have to work with First Nations and we have to really prioritize the process. There's no point in having a trail if it came from negative, a negative and harmful process, you know, what good rides could come out of that kind of outcome. So if we do things the right way, the outcomes are going to be a lot better no matter what. So we really have to go at it from that sort of perspective. And I think one thing to understand about this guidebook. So These guidelines, I was, you know, I've been working with Indigenous and non-Indigenous trail clubs and groups for quite a while. And there are a number of people out there, particularly Indigenous people, who uh, do things like training workshops and have, uh, try and teach non-Indigenous people how to work with First Nation communities and how to do it in the right way. Um, This guideline is really about making it as relevant as possible for the trails community and so I was approached by the Outdoor Recreation Council as basically someone who could kind of bring together all the lessons that have been learned and make it as relevant as possible for the trails community. Uh, But this guidebook, we did share it with as many of our Indigenous friends and mentors and and people who have guided us over the years. So there's been a lot of people who put their input uh, and wisdom into this document and we're pretty proud of what it represents.
0: Excellent. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great document and, and, um, much of the reading that's done in, in advocacy is, is, uh, is often dry and drawn out and long. So I certainly appreciated that it was short and concise and to the point, <laughs> uh, which is, which is fantastic. Um, it's always nice. And it's something that I've, I've come back to and, and reread a couple of times, not because I didn't understand it the first time, but just simply, I, I just wanted to, to come at it with a different perspective or, or, or just review something again and, and highlight something. So it, it's a, it's a great piece of work.
1: Well, I, I see it as a living document. I'm hoping that as people, as it makes uh, its way through the community, people start reading it, that people will uh, will start getting some feedback on, and will will. It's something that will be able to evolve over time. Uh, it represents the best of what uh, we know right now, but it's we're always learning and we're always uh, always open to uh, feedback. And I think people should take this and understand that it's not a universal document. It's it's you know, very specific to BC in a lot of ways, very specific to the communities that we've worked with in BC. And you should always try and really focus on listening and understanding the communities that you're working with and not think that this is in any way universal or something that can be applied just anywhere. It's just another kind of guidebook that's out there that will hopefully help inform actions and in how to move forward, but it shouldn't be taken as a final word.
0: Well, and that relates to to my next question, which is: as as non-natives, we tend to see Indigenous people as as one nation, or we want to see them as as one nation, but that's not true at all. You know, each community can have its own language, its own traditions. Um, from a from a local context uh, here in in British Columbia, um, some will be familiar with the term Coast Salish, but that that actually covers a region from Oregon up the coast through Washington State. Uh, in into British Columbia and, and up north along the coast of British Columbia. And, and within that, there's over 70 tribes and, and nations. And so when we're referring to a, a region's Indigenous people, can we use those umbrella terms like Coast Salish instead of a, a more specific tribe or, or nation's name?
1: Well, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I would definitely caution people to use those types of terms uh, sparingly. Um, you know, these broad terms have always been really developed and applied by outsiders to kind of make our lives easier. You know, it's, it's easier to say, oh, this is all Coast Salish people and we don't have to worry about trying to learn the nuances and the, and the differences and, and that come in in between. And these areas are incredibly diverse. Um, even still, you know, you can be working with one community and the community right next door is going to be. Very very different on many levels, and you you can't make any any assumptions about it and i so I mean and some of the people I do work with in the in the first nation communities they 'll refer to themselves as Salish very sparingly, but they will so it, it can be used, but I think you have to understand that you know in using that there's a very specific outcome of it that I think kind of hides the diversity and the richness of the the people that you're talking about. I almost never use the word sales just because I think I know a lot more about the communities now. So it wouldn't make sense for me in my own mind to say refer to I'm um, talking about the Astolo community that I know and lumping them in together with the Inland Cotton, which is in the Fraser Canyon and just knowing that they're so different. Like it just wouldn't make sense to me in my own mind. And I think that's what we need to be striving for is to have that level of understanding where these really broad terms just don't really make sense anymore.
0: And so, on that um, kind of theme of of learning, you you mentioned that it's it's important to recognize it's not the responsibility of an Indigenous person to educate non-First Nations people, uh, and that we need to do our own research uh, ahead of time. And and so, what resources are are out there that are available to us? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, there's a huge number of resources that I, people can use, um, and we try to list out some of them. In, in the, uh, in the document, but basically whenever folks come to me and we talk about working with first nation communities, I always, I always try to point out things, you know, usually the local first nations have quite a bit of information that is already out there on the internet. So you can look at their uh, individual websites. There's usually websites that are tied to um uh, tribal councils, which usually include a group of First Nation communities all together. And they'll often have like a lot of rich information on those sites. I often find myself looking at a lot of those sites just because they're so fascinating. There'll be all kinds of history and information about the people and their territories and the things that are important to them. So just looking through uh, websites of local bands can be really, really important. There's a number of different interactive maps and websites that are on the internet that we've listed in our document that you can go and learn Uh, about whose territories you currently live on. So there's one called Native Land, which is this amazing website uh, platform that someone's put together that shows all the traditional territories and contemporary territories of First Nations in North America and Australia. So you're able to go on there and look at where you live and be able to understand, like, these are the, the First Nation communities on whose territories uh I currently live. And it links to their websites and it links to other portals that you can go to to learn about them. So there's a number of different uh options around that. There's uh, so many books that have been published, especially in the last 10 years. Um, you know, For a long time in the Canadian publishing industry, there's a, there wasn't a lot that was being published, especially by Indigenous voices and Indigenous writers. And that's changed a great deal in the last uh, decade. So there's all kinds of books that are out there that people can get a hold of to learn about uh, local communities. I don't often recommend going to government websites, but you can go on to the Department of Indian Affairs and start at least learning about some of the, the, the First Nation groups that are out there. But hopefully that will lead you to sites that come from them, information that comes from them. Google is your friend. You can learn a great deal online and linking to, the, to their websites
0: and online sources. And we'll definitely include some of those links in, in the show notes. We're just going to take a, a quick break. And we'll be right back with Patrick Lucas. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey, from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting, all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at HealthIQMTB. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. And we're back with Patrick Lucas, founder of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. What are some of the the biggest differences between uh, approaching a non-Indigenous land manager, like a, a municipality or a park service, compared to when you approach uh, an Indigenous community?
1: Wow. that's. Let me think on this for a second. <laughs> <laughs> um that's that's a, that's a tough question for me to answer just because uh pretty much most of my work is done working with First Nation communities but I I think some of the key things is when you look at the the his, the history is quite a bit different right um so for First Nation communities they're dealing with the colonial structures that still exist around them and are very still much uh impacting their lives so their priority often is on cultural survival and reasserting their their rights and their title um, and their connection to their lands and you know it's it's often kind of said in a very trite way that they it's not about ownership within First Nation communities but it's very very much true with most of the communities I've worked with they're about they don't see it so much as a issue around ownership but around responsibility they feel responsible for their territories and if their territories aren't being cared for then that's a a struggle that they have at a very fundamental level. Um, and so often when you're work, I find when I'm trying to ally with first nation communities and be an accomplice with first nation communities, I'm trying to understand how they feel within that context. And anything I do is about serving that, purpose. Um, so for a good example is I've worked with the SIMP First Nation, which is a Shakotmack community up by barrier. And when I first started working with them and I was listening to them, they often talked about how important it was for them to reassert their presence throughout their territories. And it's something they took very, very seriously. And as we developed a trails program, we everything we did was affected by that fundamental goal. You know, so we helped them develop a trail crew that would go around their territories and work on trails and kind of assert their presence. And they were basically setting, setting themselves up as an authority for trail development in their territories. So it was, went directly to that fundamental aspect. So how that's different, let's say from a municipality, if you go to a municipality there, they have very established rules within uh, what they can do and can't do within the Canadian Constitution and the, the Municipal Government Act, uh, they have very set boundaries of where they can work, and they, it's very very bureaucratic. And they don't have that same fundamental relationship with the land that they're they're you know managing. You know, it's a very bureaucratic kind of relationship. They might you have people who deeply care about where they come from. They deeply care about their communities. uh, And those things are really, really important. And I think we also have to recognize that. But that fundamental difference between working with a First Nation has 10,000 years or much, much, much longer of history than dealing, say, with a municipality that might be 100 years old. So it's a very fundamental difference when, when you're when you're working within that space. And that might seem really, really obvious, but I, I don't know how many times I've been in a, a meeting with a First Nation community and say like a, a government agent, and you can immediately see the difference in the perspectives and understandings. And you can tell people are coming from the same issue from a, just a completely different perspective. Uh, and for those of us who are non-Indigenous, truly getting that on a visceral level can be a real wake-up moment in how you approach those kinds of issues.
0: After the initial research, what would be some of the first steps that a a trail association should take uh, when approaching uh, a First Nations community?
1: Well, I think one of the most important things I I always tell people is, one, be proactive, go to them. You know, it's, it's very easy to be like, okay, we're going to do this community meeting. It's going to be about this trail project or network or whatever. And let's make sure we extend an invitation to the local band, which I think is a great thing to do. Always be extending invitations. But I think it's always important as Dan and First Nation communities are inundated with those types of requests. They're very, very busy. And then if they do come to a meeting, like they're you know, they're the minority in the room and it can be a a kind of a difficult situation for them to deal with. I think it's on us to go to them to establish that relationship, to take those steps. So it's always a matter of kind of reaching out long before you need something. And I, I think that's one of the other really key pieces is I often have trail clubs that'll come to me and say, hey, you know, we want to do this project or we want to do that trail or or what have you, how would you recommend that we go and approach First Nation? And usually the first thing I say is, well forget about whatever it is that you want to do put that on a back burner and go work on this relationship first. And often it's, you know, go to them and, and do something for them without the expectation of anything in return. You know, go teach their kids how to ride, go build a little trail in their community, do something for them and build that kind of trust. Cause more often than not, you know, the first time that someone sets foot in their community or invites them to come out of their community to a meeting, it's because they want something from them. And I think we need to long before that happens, we should be developing those kind of relationships long before we need something for them. So I always say to local bike clubs, like just start going out to these communities, start, you know, host a dinner, you know, show some films, do a ride clinic with the kids, give out some door prizes and don't ask for something. Let that come later, and there are groups that have done that really successfully. Like I always look to um, the Williams Lake Cycling Club, and and guys like Mark, Mark Savard, who owns Red Shreds, or you know Thomas Sean, who's one of my main partners that I work with now. For like ten years or longer, they were always going out to as many of the First Nation communities around Williams Lake, the the Chilcotin communities, and the Chilcotin communities, and doing exactly that. They'd roll up in a in a bright colored van and they'd fix everybody's bikes, you know, or they'd build a little bike park, they'd build a little trail and then hang out with the kids and then hang out in the community and talk. And, and that would be it. And then they'd leave, you know, and they would do that every single year for a decade. And they just, everybody got to understand that they would, they were willing to come out and make that kind of a gesture just as a matter of saying, we're in your territories. This is what we want to do is show you that we care. And that has formed the basis of a very solid relationship in that area. And I'm always pointing to people saying that's the kind of thing that you need to be doing. And, you know, we saw that when we held the symposium, the mountain bike tourism symposium in Williams Lake a couple of years ago. And we had, we were lucky enough to have Joe Alphonse, who's a grand chief for the Chilcotin uh, national government come out and he was talking to the symposium and right in the middle of his speech, he talked, he stopped talking and he called out Mark Savard. And he talked about how, Mark would come to his community and teach his son to ride and and do that kind of stuff with the community. He would say, "This is what an ally looks like. This is the kind of thing people should be aspiring to." And I think for a lot of clubs, it's tough because they'll be like, "Okay, we have so much capacity. We're volunteers. How are we going to add this onto our plate?" Well, you know, ten years ago, people just wanted to go out and build trail, and they realized nothing was going to happen unless they started working with land managers, and they just made it a priority. And I think that's exactly what we all need to be doing with uh, the First Nation communities in the territories on whose territories we ride, is making that kind of overture, reaching out and doing something for those communities without that expectation of return. And that's step number one.
0: Yeah, you use the term, listen twice, speak once. And I, I really like that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, and I think it's actually really tough. I know it was for me. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I think especially in our own culture, you know, as a as like non-Indigenous person, as a white Canadian, I think we grow up being told, you know, speak up for yourself, you know, have an opinion, express yourself. And I, I think those are good lessons in a lot of ways. Um, but sometimes we really need to just stop talking and listen. You know, and notice that listen twice should be a long twice, (laughs) not a short twice. And then there will come a time when they expect you to speak, and that's and that's when you have your chance to express yourself. But yeah, like spend a lot of time just listening and and making it clear that that's what you're there to do. And then when they when they're ready, they'll start sharing with you, and the things that you'll learn are. Amazing. I mean, I just can't tell you how many times I've been in with uh, different First Nations people to Indigenous people and out on the land, walking around and listening to them tell stories about their people and about how they lived on the land. And and just sometimes little pieces of information about, you know, when this flower fully blooms, that's when we know the salmon is coming. Little things like that that were just so rich. And you learn so much more about the land and about what it means to live here. Um, there's just so much value in that but you really have to spend a lot of time listening. And I know for myself, it's still really hard.
0: <laughs> as advocacy groups, uh, many of us are, are, are motivated by, by never accepting no as an answer. Mountain bike advocacy was really founded on, on the need to gain access. But when we're dealing with first nations communities, how should we deal with a no?
1: Listen and respect it. And I think that's going to be really tough for different communities. Um, Cause you're right. We had to, the The early pioneers of our our movement as a mountain bike community um had to force themselves out there on the land and you know it led to like a pretty big fight uh, and they they really had to stake their place and and um show that they could that they had a a space that should be made for them out on the land but ultimately. I think the reason we have the a brilliant network of trails and the thriving industry that we have, particularly here in BC, is because ultimately we did listen to a no. We didn't fully accept it, <laughs> you know, but the community had to take a step back and listen to what land managers and uh, the landowners and the government agencies were saying, and then find a way to show that we could be out on the land and build sustainable trails and mitigate the environmental uh, and social impacts to other users to the greatest extent possible. And that result has created a body of knowledge and experience around building trails and riding experiences that is envied all over the world. So ultimately, accepting that we couldn't just go and do whatever we wanted where we wanted made us not only into better riders and better trail builders, but into fuller, uh, complete community of humans. And so ultimately I think is we need to not be afraid of a no, you know, that by, by respecting a first nation community says, no, we really don't want you here. If we build that trust, Ultimately, it's going to lead us to uh, an even better place. And I have a specific example. I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but there was a community that I was working with up north, and they had held this community meeting and said, yeah, we want to build this great trail system on this mountain. It's going to be wonderful. And they put out an invitation. And the band showed up. Some representatives from the local First Nation showed up and said, absolutely not. We're not cool with this. This is a sacred area to us. You know, We don't want to do this. No firm no and they they met with the community a few times and the community just kept saying no we don't want to do this and so they contacted me and at first they were like can you help us smooth out this relationship and I said well not for that spot <laughs> like they said no we're going to accept that but what we did end up doing is we reached out to other First Nation communities in the area and we made it clear that we were willing to listen and we went out we did the riding clinics we did everything that I kind of just spoke of where we went to the community and we just we didn't you know uh demand access or you know really push that issue and we we just took things uh really slow and gradually the community started uh talking and we ended up identifying an entirely new area where some new trail opportunities that could be developed that weren't on sacred weren't in a culturally sensitive or sacred area um Mm -hmm. that they would have the First Nation communities would have better access to, so they could use the trails that were going to be developed there. And now that project is actually moving forward. And I think the ultimate outcome of that is that we're going to have a better trail network that serves more people, has better tourism opportunities, and we're going to end up with a trail system and a riding experience that is built on trust and respect and I think the outcome of that is going to be a lot better than if someone had said, well, screw it, we're just going to force through these trails, you know. Uh, and unfortunately, there are trails on that area where people, where the First Nation didn't want it, but they're not being promoted, they're not being kind of built up more and we're hoping that one day that people will just stop riding there because we're gonna have a much better place for them to go so ultimately i think what it comes down to for the mountain bike community and canadians in general is if we really start listening to first nation communities
0: accepting
1: when they say they don't want something and respecting that i think it can ultimately lead to even better opportunities
0: uh will this document be available online at some point
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's right now where it sits is um, it's sitting with the, the outdoor recreation council. They want to kind of make, get it kind of designed up as a brochure. So it looks really nice. And then, yeah, it'll be available on their site and I think it'll be available hopefully through some government sites. It'll be, I'll make it available on the average mountain bike program site. We'll put it out in, in many as many different venues as we can so through mountain bike bc i hope they'll participate in that and various other websites i'm going to encourage every single mountain bike and trail club in the province to put these out there and hopefully we'll get lots of feedback and it'll lead to a great discussion
0: well patrick thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me i I really appreciate it
1: yeah absolutely thank you so much for having me back on and for continuing this incredibly important dialogue
0: Before I wrap up this episode, I have a couple of announcements to make regarding some upcoming events. On June 24th, I'll be in Canmore, Alberta for the Plaid Goat Mountain Bike Festival. The event runs from the 22nd to the 24th at the Canmore Nordic Centre. There's a link in the show notes. On the Sunday, I'll be hosting a workshop with various trail associations from around the province of Alberta. And if you'd like to join, then send me an email and I can share the details with you. The second event I'm excited to be a part of is the Mountain Bike State Summit, an event being hosted by the Michigan Mountain Bike Association, the Vermont Mountain Bike Association, and the Jersey Off-Road Bicycle Association this November in Michigan. Mountain Bike chapters, clubs, and organizations of all types and affiliations are encouraged to participate. The summit aims to be productive, collaborative, and tangible beyond the event itself. Designed to bring organizational leaders together, everyone has an opportunity to have their best innovations featured. A poster session format will allow a bunch of content to be shared and for everyone to focus their attention on the topics that interest them the most while speaking with other leaders with firsthand experience. There's also an opportunity to earn a trail grant. All proceeds will go towards two grants for participating organizations. Formal presentation topics include diversifying the sport, navigating organizational growth, working with chambers, CVBs, and tourism groups, incorporating for-profit perspectives into stewardship, events, the good and the bad, fundraising strategies, and e-bikes, a manufacturer's perspective. The summit will take place in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on November 6th to the 7th. There are a few extras planned, including some fun with local sponsors, a beer trolley, and a local chapter guided ride for anyone who's going to be around on the 8th. Chapters, clubs, and organizations of all types and affiliations are encouraged to participate. To register or learn more about the event, the poster sessions, event schedule, and how the MTB State Summit can help support your organization with the trail grant, go to vmba.org and look for the 18 MTB State Summit link under the Get Involved main menu link. And I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes, as well as contact info for Melissa, Tom, and Ken if you have any questions. We'll have more details about that event and another one taking place in British Columbia in episode 46 of the podcast, which will be July 20th. And with all of these events, there's a new feature on the website. You can go to frontlinesmtb.com slash events, and there's a Google calendar there with all of these events on it. So if you're hosting an advocacy focused summit or conversation or meetup, and you wanna include it on that Google calendar, just send me the details and I'll add it there. Next episode will be my panel discussion with Jeremy McGee, Ethan Kruger, Tara Yannis, and Andrew Ladawi. We'll be discussing adaptive mountain bikes and the challenges of creating a rating system. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB, and you can send me an email or audio file at info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club. And remember, a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links from the website will get sent back to the podcast as part of the Amazon affiliate program. In the show notes, you'll also find links to the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike program, the article and video mentioned at the start of my interview with Patrick, as well as a link to the interactive map at nativeland.ca. It's a complete map database of traditional territories in North America and Australia, and it's a very helpful link to understand just whose traditional territory you're living, working, or riding on. As soon as Patrick's best practices and guidelines are available to the public, I'll be sharing a link on the Facebook page and retroactively adding a link to this episode. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher Watson and BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.